for the week of September 5th, 2013. This is the Energy Gang Podcast from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor at Green Tech Media here in Washington, D.C., and also here in Washington, actually today in Virginia, is Energy Politico, Grid Wonk, and founder of 38 North Solutions, Catherine Hamilton. Hey, Catherine. Hi, how are you doing today? Good, good. Still figuring things out at the office, so working in Virginia today? Absolutely, and it's the first week of school, so uh, it's a big deal here. I have um, I have one kid who just started middle school, and as everybody who really ever wanted to go back to middle school knows, it's kind of a Lord of the Flies meets Mean Girls situation. That was probably one of the worst periods of my life, middle school. Not bad in high school, but middle school was terrible, <laughs> so I can relate. And in New York, energy futurist and author of the upcoming book, Creating Climate Wealth, Jigger Shaw. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how are you? I'm excellent. How about yourself? I am anxiously anticipating the first uh, opening kickoff for the NFL season. All right. And while the world turns its attention to the NFL and uh, to even bigger issues like the chaos in Syria, the energy gang will direct its attention to the chaos in solar. And we've got another special guest this week to help us kick off the show, Shale Khan, our vice president of GTM Research. Hey, Shale, welcome. Hey, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Excited definitely. Excited to be here. Good to have you, your first Energy Gang podcast, and hopefully uh, not your last. So Shale's here to converse about our first topic, something that we're covering a lot these days on both the Energy Gang and just on Green Tech Media generally, solar net metering policy. So we're going to focus on California today, where a little-known compromise bill is in the works over net metering that could bring major changes to residential electricity pricing structures there, which could potentially bring major changes to the solar market. It's an interesting new twist in the saga over solar policy, and we will discuss it and talk about the broader implications for other states as well. Then the gang will talk about the viability of Bloom Energy's fuel cells, and assess the onslaught of energy efficiency announcements coming out of the government, including whether the Shaheen-Portman efficiency bill will see a vote now that the Senate is so focused on Syria. So let's get into it. AB 327 is a bill uh, not known much outside of California, but within the state it's caused fear, anger, and now a bit of hope among those in the solar industry because of a potential compromise. Uh, It's even been at the target of protests this summer and cable TV ads against it. So what is it? Well, at first pass, it wasn't directly related to solar. Uh, The bill would have flattened out tiered rate structures, rates that rise uh, in California for heavy power users, and then um, also potentially allow utilities to charge customers a higher fee each month for fixed transmission and distribution costs. So in exchange, the solar industry could get an extension of net metering and a more transparent process for extending the policy, which came in later language. So the problem is that these changes to tiered rates could wipe out a lot of the value that solar brings to customers who are paying higher prices for consuming a lot of electricity. And if you haven't read the fabulous stories on our site this week by Jeff St. John, uh, please do so. He's kind of one of the only reporters out there who's covered the ins and outs of this bill and its implications. Um, And that's why we have Shale Khan with us, because we're going to talk about the implications here. Um, so, Shia, what the heck is happening over there in California? This is this is a pretty big deal, but it hasn't gotten a lot of attention outside of the state. Um, how are these two elements, the changes to tiered rates and, and the fixed service charge, 
How are those going to impact solar, potentially? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a huge deal. And it really should be a big deal for solar, particularly residential solar, throughout the U.S., because California is often looked to as an example that other states kind of latch on to in anything to do with solar. So what happens in California ends up becoming a model that gets replicated elsewhere. And this bill, AB 327, hits right at the heart of what I think is going to be the single biggest either driver or barrier to distributed solar growth in the U.S. for really the foreseeable future, because it touches on the two elements that kind of dictate what the value of solar is when you install it on a customer's rooftop. Um, the first is the electricity rate that they're paying. So basically, the you know you the way you run the numbers, you compare the cost of solar against the cost of their retail electricity. So if you change the cost of their retail electricity, then you have by nature changed the viability of solar. So the first piece of it is it it alters that in California, and that's more California specific. But the second piece of it is it addresses, or at least begins to address the net energy metering debate in California, which is perhaps even more critical because this is a debate that has popped up in a few places. California is probably along with Arizona, the states that are the furthest along in that debate right now, but it's popped up in other places more recently. Excel Energy in Colorado started talking about it, and I think basically every major solar market at some point is going to see a similar conversation go on around whether the current net energy metering structure, which in most places basically allows residential customers to receive full retail credit for power that they feed back into the grid, is the right way to compensate solar over the long term. And if it's not, then what is? And so this bill kind of deals with both of those things. It changes rate structures and it sets kind of a near-term certainty for net energy metering in California. It clarifies that the current net energy metering program will be in place until the earlier of when each utility in California hits a particular capacity limit or 2017. And we've run some numbers and it looks like those are, it'll be neck and neck as to which happens. So in all likelihood, you end up with this net metering program in place through 2016. And then it sets basically a process through which the California Public Utilities Commission will end up deciding what the successor program is to the current net metering program. So it doesn't yet tell you what the successor program will be, but it tells you how it's going to be decided and makes sure that it isn't decided too soon. So a lot to bite off there. Anybody anybody want to comment on the the trade-off here, the, the changes that we talked about, and then the, the increased transparency over net metering. Does, that, does anyone think this well, is a good trade-off? Well, I think it's important to give us more context here. I mean, you know, I was around in 2001, 2002 when Tom Hoff at Clean Power Research and others put the tiered rate structures in place. We deliberately put them in place because we wanted rich people or generally people with larger houses who pay these higher bills to have the incentive to do renewable energy or energy efficiency, right? And so, you know, one of the things that's fascinating here is the utilities are actually crying uncle and saying that the technologies that are being deployed under these tier rate structures are hurting them so badly that they need a legislative fix because they don't feel like they have the votes in the Public Service Commission. I would just note, too, I mean, I think if you, stepping back for context, 
and I know you guys have talked about the the whole utility death spiral thing before on the energy gang. You know, I think what's really going on here, it's not necessarily that utilities are feeling the pain this second. It's that, you know, historically, even if there hadn't been net metering caps, there was always something of kind of an artificial constraint on any given distributed solar market, which was basically the availability of state incentive programs. And the, when any given state incentive program ran out, the market basically disappeared. And we are just starting to see this happen now in California, where the California Solar Initiative has basically run out and installations continue to grow. So in that kind of world, you know, the, the theoretical limit on solar installations basically goes away, at least in today's magnitude. And so that's what utilities are seeing. And I think, you know, being smart and recognizing that 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 is a real risk, and that's why they're trying to make these changes to rate structures now to lower the value of solar so that they don't see runaway growth from their perspective. Yeah, and it'll buy you a little bit of time out there. But if you look out at 2017, you could be looking at flat tiers, exorbitant fixed charges and the federal ITC expires at the end of 2016. So the solar industry is going to be in a total crunch if you don't, if we can't fix it in California. I mean, the the interesting thing about this bill, it doesn't actually change a whole lot. It basically gives the CPUC authority to consider changing a number of things. So it doesn't, for example, it doesn't actually introduce fixed charges. It just gives the CPUC authority to consider introducing fixed charges on customer bills of up to $10 a month. So, and it does the same thing with changing rate structures, and then it gives the PUC authority to deal with net metering as well. So none of these things are set in stone, um, but I think you can envision a scenario where if all of them turn in a direction that isn't favorable towards solar, and you have the new net metering regime or new tariff structure entering into effect right around the time that the ITC expires, you could have a crash in the market. I mean, there's no there question. No... Stack a fixed charge and two tiers and a much lower tariff that the market would hurt. There is no way that's going to happen. The entire fate of clean energy deployment in the entire world rests on the shoulders of solar. Whether you're trying to like push fuel cells or advance energy efficiency or solar hot water, every single person out there is copying, you know, learning from, you know, working with the solar PV industry. So I guarantee you that we have so much people power that there's no way that's going to happen. Yeah, and Jim, isn't it note- that, de- that demand response and energy efficiency all are all ra- wrapped around the same axle? And the issue is, if you're not given credit for energy efficiency and demand response, and those people are finally able to then afford solar, it's it, it becomes this this untenable situation for being able to grow solar if you can't then also take advantage of other cost saving measures. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, basically, everyone knows that it's a slippery slope. At the time at which you screw solar, it will be just around the corner that you screw demand response, load control, ancillary services market for batteries. Everyone basically benefits from solar succeeding. And so I I just think it's an impossibility to see the utilities winning on destroying solar demand growth. You know, in relation to this bill in particular, I don't think that that is the intent of the bill either. And in fact, there's language built into the bill that when the CPUC is considering the next version of net metering, they have to take into account the need for sustainable growth of distributed generation. So the bill clearly wants to see solar continuing to grow. It just, you know, arguably wants to see 
solar compensated a little bit lower as it grows. So say we see this compromise, the solar industry gets behind it. What does it say about compromises in other states where we're starting to see battles around net metering? Will the solar industry or will utilities accept these fixed uh, transmission and distribution costs in exchange for an extension of net metering policies so that the costs are borne by all customers, including solar customers. What do you think about that piece of the compromise itself? Well, I think, and I'm interested to hear what Jigger and Catherine think about this as well, but I mean, the first point to make here is that every state is in a totally different position with regard to net metering. California is particularly risky right now because there's a net metering cap in place. And if something didn't happen, that cap was going to get hit, and the net metering you know, would, by default, disappear. That's not true everywhere. And so that gave the utilities a bit of leverage that they don't necessarily have in other states. Um, and so I think every state, is, you know, and every state has a different public utilities commission or public service commission, and, and they have different makeups and different attitudes towards solar. I think what's interesting about California is you basically see all of the, the major options on the table at once the changes to rate structures as well as the changes to valuing solar for net metering. I don't think every state will replicate California, but I do think it'll be interesting to see because everything is on the table and it has to get decided, assuming this bill passes by mid-2015, that you know we'll have something that can be used as an example everywhere else. Yeah, and Shale, this conversation is happening at the, you know, the state regulators meeting, NARUC. I mean, this is a huge topic of conversation. So everybody's actually hearing the same words from the utilities and from others. Um, so, you know, when everybody is hearing it and, and it's a big topic, it does impact the regulatory construct in those states. But I don't think that we have to concede it yet. I mean, I think the California state net metering, you know, sort of value of solar study is coming down the pike here. Um, There are many utilities who readily admit that solar is hugely valuable on pushing out distribution substation um, upgrades. And so it's, it's still not clear to me that we've lost the battle on this, you know, is, is, you know, is net metering a subsidy? I still think that net metering is not a subsidy. And in fact, I think we're giving um, utilities way more value than we're getting through net metering. Yeah, honestly, though, I think what we need to do is stay vigilant on making sure that there's good research out there on on how solar, who is put, who's installing solar, how it's affecting all consumer classes. Because when utility, when some utilities start crying foul on the lower income consumers, which has been pretty disingenuous in California, I think. Um, that's when regulators and and some of the state consumer advocates start really listening. And I, so I just think that we need to stay vigilant on ensuring that there's really good research out there that doesn't try to you know change the numbers on who is really participating. I totally agree. I think having good research out there on two things is really important. One, what Catherine was saying, who is going solar? Um, because that is something that I think the utilities have made some blanket statements about it just being rich people. And, you know, there have been some studies from the solar industry that have done a good job of refuting that, but we could do better. And then the other is, you know, the big question here is what is the value of solar on the grid? You know, Jigger's point about it being a net benefit, there are studies that have said that, and then there are studies that have said the opposite. Actually, one thing, if you're the wonky type, then uh, the best thing that I've seen out there on that is, Rocky Mountain Institute put something out from their ELAB program just about a month ago 
it's basically a meta study looking at every study that they could find on the value of solar on the grid and sort of identifying the places where the studies vary from each other. And that's real good reading if you want to get into the weeds. I totally so do agree. they call it a that, subsidy? Does, does RMI call they, it a subsidy? No, they're not taking a position. They're just yeah. saying, here are all the studies that have been done, and here's where the variance lies. I don't know how you you can't call it a subsidy, though. I mean, I disagree with you, Jigger. You are explicitly putting a regulatory policy in place to provide a financial incentive for people who are using the grid as backup for their solar system. And I think we can have a very realistic, robust debate about the value of solar on the system. But when it comes down to it, you're you're putting a mandatory structure in place to promote no. a particular technology, and I just don't see how that's not a subsidy. No, but that's not that's not true, right? I mean, the, the I mean the history of net metering, and I was part of it. I mean, in the late '90s, we created net metering, you know, before that, but we popularized in the late '90s for one reason and one reason only, because the electric utility industry had no capabilities whatsoever to do net billing uh, for small systems for small customers. This whole concept of net metering was only created as a fix for the fact that the electric utility company's billing system is still programmed in COBOL. Well, also, the consumers are actually generating electricity that is being used by the utility on the grid. So they're actually producing something. It's not like just throwing money at them. Well, I think the I, here's the if I can gel the argument for solar being a net benefit down, here's how I would think that it goes. Um, Solar has value to the grid. Part of the value is the generation value that Catherine is mentioning. That is kind of the obvious part and the part that the utilities are willing to concede. There's also additional value provided by distributed solar on the grid in terms of lowering the cost to distribution upgrades, grid support services, and things like that. Those pieces of it provide some additional value that's really hard to quantify, but if you believe that that value on top of the generation value adds up to more than the retail rate, then arguably solar with net metering is subsidizing utilities, not the other way around. So true, though they may be using the grid for backup, the value that they're providing to the grid in avoided costs elsewhere is, you know, exceeds the value that they're receiving in return. I think that's the argument for solar being a net benefit whether or not you can prove it and whether or not it's true. So let me tell but, you, let me ask you, Shale, do you think that there's enough evidence now that shows that solar provides a net benefit? Are you willing to come down on any position yet? No, and I'm actually really excited for the CPUC study that's coming out supposedly in October from E3 because I think they do pretty good work. And this is supposed to be a, an unbiased, very sober look at it. I, I think, honestly, it's really hard to quantify. To quantify the distribution value of distributed solar at various levels of penetration in various places on various grids is really hard to do. And so I'm not, you know, I, I can't come down and give a blanket statement like solar is a net benefit or a net cost. I do think that there have been, you know, some of what the utilities have claimed the value to be has been ridiculously low. Um, and on the other side of it, you know, I think there have been some overly positive assumptions made in some of the, the studies that were funded by the solar industry. But if I'm leaning in a direction, I think solar is not nearly as much of a, or net metering is not nearly as much of a subsidy as any utility I've heard has called it. So Can I say, yeah. can I say one more thing, though, in California? Um, so even with the changes in AB 327, what they're finding is that the net cost per kilowatt hour for consumers is going to be in the 20 cent 
per kilowatt hour range or above. And so at that level, it's by 2017, I think people are going to be able to go off grid with batteries and not have to connect to the grid at all if if they insist on putting these punitive charges in. Yeah, that's actually one, I think, one point that is worth kind of hammering home here, which is that, you know, the big risk utilities run, basically anything that they're doing here that lowers the value of solar by through a net metering mechanism or restructure mechanism or something like that, increases the value of storage because it just makes it more and more valuable for you to do solar plus storage and go totally off grid. I mean, it's not happening much yet, but depending on your view of distributed storage, it's not that far off. And that's what should really terrify utilities, not just, you know, solar customers. Well, Catherine, being uh, a storage expert, I think we'll probably bring that conversation up again. Uh, but with that, we're going to have to wrap this segment up. Uh, Shale Khan, Vice President of GTM Research, really good conversation. I know you'll be following this legislation, all the net metering and other regulatory battles, and uh, we'll be covering it a lot on greentechmedia.com. Make sure to check out Jeff St. John's stories on AB327. They're really good pieces, the most comprehensive out there. Uh, Shale Khan, thanks for stopping by. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Shale. Yeah, thanks. All right, on to our second topic. In 2010, Bloom Energy hit the scene with a solid oxide fuel cell uh, that it claimed would revolutionize the distributed energy industry. And over the last decade, it has raked in over a billion dollars in venture capital, uh, $500 million in the last couple of years to build out manufacturing capabilities for its Bloom box. Um, and it has brought in some big customers like Google, Walmart, FedEx, and eBay. But the company has come under major scrutiny over the last couple of years for a subsidy package to help it build a manufacturing plant and grid project in Delaware, uh, for the cost of generation from its natural gas fuel cells, and because it runs off of natural gas and because of its efficiency for not being as clean as claimed. So consider this. In public documents prepared by the Delaware Public Service Commission, Bloom reported that its natural gas fuel cell emits between... 773 and 884 pounds of CO2 per megawatt hour, fewer emissions than coal or oil-fired power plants, but roughly the same uh, what a new combined cycle natural gas power plant does. So should Bloom's fuel cell be considered a part of a state-level renewable energy standard as it is in Delaware? Lots to chew on here about Bloom and fuel cells generally. Uh, everyone seems to have a strong opinion on Bloom, and I suspect the comment board will be dominated by people talking about this. Who wants to provide their perspective on the status of Bloom? Anyone want to jump in here? Well, let me let me start with a little bit of background. I think it's important to note that the way Bloom Energy works is that, yes, it's a fuel cell, but the whole concept behind Bloom Energy is that they're hot swappable, right? So that you can, at the time at which they come up with some better technology than they have now, they can swap their sort of fuel cell out for a new fuel cell in these cabinets. And it provides two benefits. One is um, it's far more robust and far more reliable. So if one of the fuel cells uh, goes down, the rest of the cabinet still runs. Um, but the other thing is that they can they can promise their customers that they'll constantly get the newest technology as it comes out. So they're not really selling you one fuel cell that you're supposed to hold for 20 years. There's, they they want to see that fuel cell be upgradable 
as their technology upgrades. Yeah. And before we get even deeper in the conversation, Jigger, are you involved with any fuel, fuel cell companies in investments or, or working with any companies? I'm not. I'm not. So I've, I've never been a big fan of fuel cells. Um, you know, not, not because they're bad technology, but just more because I just don't see why fuel cells are superior to a capstone microturbine with, um, you know, with um, um, co-generation or a Sterling engine unit that Dean Kamen just came out with or some of the other technologies that use natural gas. Yeah, I mean, a co-generation facility, a natural gas co-generation facility is, you know, 80% efficient when you factor in electricity production and using the heat to uh, for hot water. And the bloom box is roughly, you know, 40, 45% efficiency, efficient. And the cost of a co-gen system is like, you know, $3,000 a kilowatt versus an $8,000 a kilowatt for a bloom box. Um, so same application, much different cost structure and efficiency. Uh, Catherine, what's your take on bloom specifically in, in the fuel cell sector generally, which has just been facing a number of troubles and hasn't really seen a lot of traction over the years? Yeah, it's always been like another 10 years down the road. Um, and yet, uh, if you look at what Bloom's doing, you know, they've doubled their manufacturing capacity. They're selling units um, and they're getting audited for their, you know, to meet the emission standards in those states where they're op- California, Connecticut, Delaware, and they're passing it. So they're doing OK on on the emissions. Um, I think part of the issue is this for the carbon accounting is, you know, whether you're using marginal versus average emissions. And there was a big report from ICF, a study on that about how you do that for DG. Um, The interesting thing I think about Bloom, uh, besides uh, that Jigger talks about sort of the hot swappable concept, is that this is considered baseload. So it's 24-7, 365. It's got a very high capacity factor, uh, much higher than any other traditional generation on the grid, certainly. Um, And so it's, it's actually supplanting base load not just peak load and and i find that interesting because so much of what's going out there now on the distributed side uh can't be fully base load yet and so you know why i think while i think energy storage is going to get there um right now the units aren't aren't doing what the bloom box can do right now and and so i find that i find that very interesting yeah i mean the, the thing about bloom for me that gives me pause is that um, as we talked about before, I see how you can do a capstone microturbine 30 kilowatt unit in the bottom of, you know, a condo building and, you know, dump the heat into a um, into a boiler that, you know, that, that provides hot water for showers and stuff. I just don't see how Bloom gets there because they've explicitly said they don't want to do cogeneration. Um, and so they're really only about um, electricity efficiency, which is like you said, below 50%. And so if you think about where we need to get to on climate change, um, we need to reduce emissions in the electricity sector by 80% or so um, by 2050. And so I just don't see how we get there using bloom boxes. I don't think Walmart's going to invest. I mean, they're one of the biggest demand response players as well. I mean, I just don't think they're going to invest unless they think it's something that's worth it to them. They're they're very much bottom line oriented in a lot of ways. And um, 
So I think that, yes, I, I think they have been secretive. They haven't been out there talking about their stuff. And so what that does is it creates a vacuum that folks like the Institute for Energy Research can run into and complain as they do about all the clean energy sectors about what they're getting. And then, then, then you know, if you're not refute, if someone's not refuting you, um, that argument still kind of stands out there. I think we need to look at who the detractors are, too, and just you know, look and see who's actually um, pushing back against this and the reality of who they're selling to. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not disagreeing that they're having commercial success. I mean, that's, and I don't actually have a problem with the subsidies they've received in the Delaware deal and other things that, that all of that's fine with me. I guess my, my question, I mean, you know, Stephen, you used to work with Joe Rahm at CAP and, you know, Catherine, you've been around these issues for a long time. Do you just see a future for, a fuel cell that doesn't seem to have an ability to achieve this lower emissions target in our mix. Uh, when a cogen system costs three bucks a watt versus eight bucks a watt, when it, it lasts far longer, is much more reliable and easier to maintain. I mean, a, a Bloom fuel cell stack has to be replaced perhaps every few years because of contaminants. I don't see how they're going to be able to compete in a big way, both on cost and reliability. So the answer to your question is no, I don't necessarily see a future here. Um, and I think that the experience of many other fuel cell companies, there are almost no profitable fuel cell companies out there today, uh, speaks to that experience. And, and I'm just not yet convinced that Bloom itself is going to buck that trend. Yeah, I don't know. There are some niche markets that fuel cells have been successful in. Uh, forklifts have been successful in the fuel well, cell market. Yeah, the military sector, the military, microgrids, yeah. Yeah, so I think there is going to be a place for it. I honestly, I'm always excited about innovation. So where I see energy storage and fuel cells, uh, when I when I see them starting to be successful and starting starting to sell units, I actually get excited. So yeah. I'm I'm hoping that they are successful. But for stationary power, we haven't yet seen that fuel cells blooms or other companies fuel cells can match up with a combined cycle natural gas power plant or a cogeneration unit on site so that's yeah. a major problem so i don't like so i guess what i'm saying is i don't see anyone offering the 218 million dollars that bloom took out of the sgip program in california in other states i just don't see it coming in New York or Illinois or any of the other states that are putting together their programs. So you think the music is, is stopped and they have to prove themselves without that hundreds of millions of dollars that they got in California? Yeah, I mean, I think the, I think the music will stop. I think they've got a pipeline of about 18 months here that they're, uh, that they're working off of. And then after that, they're going to have to find their next big market. There's one element to this conversation that's a little bit hypocritical when we talk about subsidies, and I mentioned it be before. The solar industry obviously has relied on major incentive programs and really favorable state regulatory policy in order to move it forward. And Bloom is doing the exact same thing that other renewable energy technologies, particularly solar, have done. But what we see in solar that we are not seeing in fuel cells yet is increased performance and very steady, if not dramatic, cost drops. And you can ramp down incentive programs over time, which we are doing to meet those cost drops. And so the reality is in solar, we're seeing massive changes in performance. And in fuel cells, that those changes have been very incremental or non-existent. And 
that's the difference between a company like Bloom or others getting hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies and solar companies taking advantage of subsidies around the country, in my opinion. Yeah, but uh, but Stephen, the, the R&D budget for fuel cells has been total feast or famine. I mean, it depends on which administration is in, and it's not intuitively obvious ever, or which you know Secretary of Energy is there, whether or not fuel cells are loved or hated. And so their budget is constantly being zeroed out, put back in. I, I feel like they haven't had the same level of sustained funding that a lot of the other renewables folks have had. I just, I, I mean, my big thing is that forget about the technology improvements. For me, it's like if fuel cells were hugely successful along their own R&D projections, I still don't think it's a solution for 80% emissions reductions by you know 2050. I'm not willing to dismiss the company quite yet. Uh, usually if I make a major projection, it's going to be wrong. So I've learned not to make major projections, but... Uh, I'm not terribly positive on Bloom. Yeah, no, I'm certainly not going to write off Bloom. I think they're going to, you know, figure out something. But I do think that they have a responsibility, if they really want to be successful in the future, of making their case to public policy officials and saying to them, here is why we deserve a place in an RPS or in an electricity future. Well, our editor, Eric Wessoff, is not very bullish on the future of fuel cells. I talked to him quite a bit about this, and I would love to get him on the show because he writes extensively about this. So let's bring it up again. Really interesting topic. And let's move on to the third. So efficiency has dominated this summer's political news from Obama's climate agenda to the Shaheen Portman bill to speeding up efficiency standards at the Department of Energy. Efficiency is turning out to be the star of the political show this year at a time when there's very little comprehensive being done on energy. So has efficiency become one of the only things we can get done right now? Catherine, what do you think? Yeah, the awesome thing about efficiency is you don't have to believe in science. <laughs> you just, it just is energy efficient. So everybody can get behind it. Um, I, I did talk to Senator Shaheen's folks today, and um, it looks like right after now I, I actually don't think the vote, the Syria vote is going to take a, a, a huge amount of time. But um, of course, I can't really completely speculate on that. It's not my sweet spot. But but right after it, this sec, this is second up. Um, yeah. And I asked them about amendments. They're still negotiating amendments. But yeah, I honestly think it's something everybody can rally around. Yep. Uh, just to give people some context, we're talking about the Shaheen Portman bill, which we discussed in the podcast a few weeks ago, uh, would create pretty sweeping changes to building codes and uh, federal efficiency programs. Um, and it was supposed to hit the floor next week in the Senate. And it's now being held up potentially because of the the vote to authorize uh, attacks on Syria. But uh, as Catherine said, it may still go forward. The big issue, it sounds like, though, is these amendments and not necessarily Syria. Uh, again, there's this Keystone XL approval amendment and some other uh, amendments that people are kind of worried about. So how how heavy is this Christmas tree going to get? That's the question. Yeah, and it's a hair. It's that's in Harry Reid's corner. He will yeah. he will decide, you know what what he's going to allow and what he won't allow. So, what do you think about the DOE standards that just came out for walk-in freezers uh, and metal halide lamps? These are these are standards that have been in the works for years and have been hung up. And now, finally, the DOE is moving forward on these as part of Obama's climate agenda. Moniz came in as Secretary of Energy and said, hey, we want to move through these. 
uh, ACEEE said there were eight standards that have been in the works for years that are uh, costing consumers hundreds of millions of dollars each year because they're not put in place. So a little good news there. We've seen a couple of standards move forward that have been stuck. Yeah, I think there is good news. But I think it's important to note that, like, even, um, you know, Juliet Halperin from The Washington Post, like, you know, did an article last week about this and and pointed out that OMB, at the request of the White House, had been holding up these um, these energy efficiency standards for over a year and a half for one and, and nearly two years for the other. Well, wasn't so, it because they just didn't have the staff to do it? No, it's because the White House basically shut down everything. Um, at OMB because there's like, well, what political efficacy do we get for putting this stuff out? Because right now, you know, the Republicans are all over us around. We don't like standards. Remember the flack they got for the ceiling fan standard? I just think that this president for a long time has been really yellow bellied around how he decides, you know, to stand up to the Republicans. It sounds like at this point with this climate speech, this is something that he really wants to push over the line, which is fantastic and great to see. But I do think that the president has to you know, take his lumps as well for holding this stuff up for two years. Yeah, I never underestimate the power of a bureaucracy to not get things done. But um, certainly, I think uh, the president was much more focused on stimulus, on the economy, on the bailout, on uh, health care in that first term. And now that he's shifted his focus, he's able to, it seems that when he gets focused, he gets pretty laser focused and he's, he's cutting loose a lot of things. And this is one of when this is, this is going to be a huge benefit. This is going to, this is a big part of the climate plan. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And the ACEEE, I think came out with a report recently that said that, um, the cost to the American people, um, even up front has been, um, much lower than originally anticipated for these standards. And so, um, so I mean, it, it, it seems like it's really the right move. And on top of that, I think when you look at where the Europeans are with their A triple plus standards or the top runner program that Japan is in, I mean, I think that the U.S., while we invented the whole Energy Star concept, we've been bypassed by these other uh, countries and regions um, in terms of keeping it innovative. Well, this this study that you pointed out by ACEEE is very important because it now shows we have tangible data on the impact of efficiency standards. And we often claim that efficiency standards will save consumers so much money over time, and it helps to have the actual historical data. And it shows that the DOE, in previous, uh, when developing previous appliance standards, uh, actually said that their standards would increase appliances by about 150 bucks a piece. We're talking about clothes washers and air conditioners, and it turned out that the average increase uh, in, or excuse me, the average cost impact was a $12 decrease in uh, those appliances, which is amazing. And so. The DOE is overestimating the cost of uh, these standards, which is an important lesson to learn going forward. Something that we yeah, but really remember that's that's because the manufacturers are telling them it's going to cost me so much more to manufacture more energy efficient right. equipment. The same way the car companies said that it was going to you know put cars out of normal people's budget to put seatbelts in. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, I I can't even begin to say how critical this is. And I get the fact that EPA is important in terms of their greenhouse gas emission standards, but this is actually equally as important because if the if the administration actually does this with gusto and gets the stuff out the door, 
what you will find is that we will be able to zero out all load growth in this country for the next two decades. And that is a big deal. It is a big deal because it actually, you know, heightens and, and accelerates the utility death spiral. It means that electricity rates will go up by 5% a year if we're not actually growing in terms of electricity consumption each year. And so a lot of the economics that we're looking at um, are going to be severely affected by advanced energy efficiency standards. So I think it's important for the administration to put these out. All right. Well, let's wrap up the show. Good conversation this week. And uh, let's tell our listeners something they may not know, something surprising or novel. Uh, Jigger, how about you? Let's start off with uh, something that may interest us. Well, you know, this is a little more whimsical, but I was reading a blog post on uh, Stanford University's website, which did an analysis of the total carbon emissions associated with owning a large dog. And it was equivalent to owning an SUV. And with 78 million household pets in the country. Really? Wow. Yeah. A, 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 a large dog is equivalent to 6,000 miles a year driven in an SUV. That's fascinating. And you can't ride on them. And all <laughs> dog owners are bristling right now. Well, I'm not suggesting anything negative. <laughs> oh, about I know. Dogs, I... <laughs> although, although they may want to, like, you know, pay $45 to pay for offsets to uh, offset their dog's carbon emissions. But, um, but, but it is fascinating how we've all like gotten so mad about uh, about SUV emissions and when uh, when you know there's a lot of emissions around uh, around from pets to lots of other things. I sense a new industry emerging: dog carbon offsets. <laughs> Catherine, how about you? Tell us something we don't know. Yeah, so this is interesting with all of the talk about uh, Syria and the president going to talk in front of the G20 to convince everybody of his plan. When he was in Sweden yesterday, he got Sweden, Denmark, and the Kingdom of Denmark, uh, Greenland is part of the Kingdom of Denmark, Finland, Norway, and Iceland on board with a plan to stop public financing for overseas coal-fired power plants. Um, and that was a big deal, that he is still bullish on carbon, that he still wants them all to come together on a comprehensive agreement in 2015 during the UN climate negotiations. Um, all of those countries are Arctic, and they're all, you know, have Arctic zones in them and are experiencing significant climate impacts. Uh, but to be able to continue to talk about that at this time is pretty important. I'm sensing some real momentum on this issue. Yeah, and, I agree. And this is probably more uh, impactful than anything that uh, negotiators have done at uh, UN climate summits in recent years. Although that bar is pretty low. <laughs> All right. So uh, mine is an experience from this last weekend. Uh, I write a lot about the sharing economy and about ride-sharing services, but I have to admit that I only recently signed up for Uber, and it was because of an emergency situation. So I I've been on a BlackBerry for a long time, and I finally got an iPhone like a couple months ago, and I'm just now signing up for these really cool apps and uh, making my way into the 21st century. But I was in Old Town Alexandria on Sunday, not realizing that the metro was going to close down early. I got stuck there at about one in the morning and was unable to get a ride home, unable to hail a taxi. And uh, my girlfriend said, well, why don't you just sign up for Uber and get a cab, get a black car? So within you know 45 seconds, I signed up for Uber. I'm talking great. I don't want to like gush about the company too much, but I will say the the – uh, the user experience was really good. I signed up for the service in 45 seconds, 
or a minute and then hail the cab and within six minutes uber had sent a nice town car there had their their driver's face and name up there with his rating system and then he gave us a good ride home and of course people know that it's an easy payment experience and then i got home and about an hour and 40 minutes after i had called the taxi they finally called to say that they were sending someone on their way and so traditional taxi companies are upset about uber because they think they're circumventing regulations and i think there's a very interesting debate there um when a when a, a disruptive company comes in and offers a service that is not regulated in the same way. But boy, is the service so much better when it comes to an emergency situation like that. And I think that taxi companies and traditional car companies are going to get their lunch eaten if they don't pay attention to this type of experience. Yeah, no, I love Uber. I've been using it for a couple of years. And I think the sharing economy really has some real likes to it. So I think it'll be pretty fun. Yeah, we're covering it more as part of our efficiency coverage at GTM, and I, I definitely want to have a longer show on the sharing economy because there's so much to it. Well, let's wrap up for the week. Um, that marks the end of the show. So you can check out greentechmedia.com for links to many of the stories that we discussed on the podcast. And, of course, most importantly, don't forget to subscribe. There are so many ways that you can do it. Um, we are on SoundCloud, which is a great uh, website, and, and they have a good mobile app. Uh, so just check out SoundCloud for, for the Energy Gang. You can find us on iTunes, and we also link to our RSS feed on the podcast page on Green Tech Media so that you can integrate it into the podcast player of your choice. Uh, so please pass the word on to your friends, family, colleagues. If you know anybody who would like this show, send them word. We want to get more listeners. And, of course, uh, just send us emails when you have a topic that you want covered on this show or uh, comments about the format. You know, we want to respond to our listeners. Well, that is all for us this week. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, good to talk to you. Thanks very much for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Jigger Shaw. Same to you. We'll talk to you soon. I, I will be thinking fondly of you at the U.S. Open tonight. Wow. Someone's thinking of me at the U.S. Open. That's amazing. <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I am Stephen Lacey, and we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. Make sure to think about us throughout the week. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>